Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by the author, journalist, and essayist, Nathan Thrall. His latest book is called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. It's an intimate, gripping, and very human story about the Israel-Palestine struggle through the lens of a deadly bus accident in 2012 outside of Jerusalem. Nathan's book was published this year on October 3rd, just days before the Hamas attacks on Israel that have led to the most recent violence in Israel-Palestine. We talk today about how Nathan's book has been received in light of these events, how he came to write this story, and how he, an American-born Jew living in Jerusalem, navigates his own criticisms of Israel. Don't forget, our book club discussion for December is of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. We will be talking about the book on December 27th with Farah Kareem Cooper. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you love this show and you want inside access to it, join The Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash The Stacks. If you join now, in addition to getting bonus episodes, access to our Discord, and our monthly book club meetups, you'll also get our reading tracker and the ability to vote in the 2023 Literary Awards we call The Stackies. And when you join the Stacks Pack, you get the most important perk of all, which is supporting me. Hello, an independent creator making a super niche show all about books. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And a quick shout out to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Elizabeth, Donald Brown, Josephine Saunders, Kiese Lehman, and Lisa. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. And thank you, of course, to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not do it without you. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Nathan Thrall. All right, everyone, I am very excited today. I get to speak to an author of a book that I read this year that I just really, really loved. His name is Nathan Thrall, and the book is called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Nathan, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really excited to have you. I have to be super upfront. Sometimes 
uh, if I don't tell admit to being nervous about an interview, I can't get out of my head. So I have to tell you, I'm really nervous to talk to you, not because I am nervous to ask you questions about the book, but because we're also going to talk about what's going on in Jerusalem or in Israel and Palestine. And it's just like such a touchy topic. And I'm not an expert and you are. And so I'm just a little bit nervous that I'm going to fuck up and people are going to hate me. So I just want to throw that out there for you. So for you, for a life raft for myself. You Let's can just make me. sure that we're both can- canceled in every possible venue yeah, by the end of the this. That's the goal. That's yes. the goal. This episode's coming out like a few weeks before the end of the year. So I'm really trying to go out on 2023 with a bang and just not have to do the show next year. I'm trying to retire. Um, okay. Let's start with the book where, where we always start. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell folks what the book's about? Sure. Um, so the book is about a tragic uh, accident uh, involving a school bus full of kindergartners uh, that um, occurred in the Jerusalem area where I live. And uh, the bus was struck by a giant semi-trailer. It flipped over and caught fire. And it was a very, very long time before the emergency services arrived. And I tell the story of the parents, children, uh, teachers, rescuers, um, settlers who lived nearby the accident site, emergency service personnel. Um, I tell the whole story of Israel-Palestine through this one uh, terrible event. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. I guess we should just start with why this story why I know you wrote an article about it that had the same title. Only like one percent of that article is in the book. That's in all your press material. Yeah. Um, so I want to know why you wanted to tell this story or use this story to tell your bigger story, and then also why Abed and not one of the other parents or one of the teacher. Like, how did you decide this was the version of the story to tell? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so, you know, I live uh, about two miles away from where Abid Salama uh, lives. Uh, I live in Jerusalem near the walls of the old city. And um, just two miles away is an enclave. It's uh, surrounded by walls on four sides um, where the kindergartners and their parents and teachers uh, came from. And half of this uh, enclosed enclave where about 130,000 people live today, um, about half of it is within the municipality of Jerusalem and half of it is outside of it. And what that means uh, in practical terms is that uh, Israel considers half of this enclave to be within its sovereign territory and the other half of it to be unannexed occupied territory. And um, this had really important consequences for all of the people involved on the day of the crash, because if you lived in the one half of the enclave, you had a blue Jerusalem ID, which allowed you to travel more freely. And if you lived in the other half, like Abid Salama uh, does, you have a green West Bank ID. You couldn't go to uh, Jerusalem and search in the hospitals there for your uh, child. And um, for me, the location of the accident uh, really allowed me to uh, unpack this entire very elaborate system of control that exists. I'm able to show um, the great inequality that exists 
just mm. side by side in this in this place where people are living these separate and unequal lives, where there is a 26-foot-tall gray concrete wall encircling these 130,000 people, and they're just sitting there right below you know, the manicured grounds of the most prestigious university in Israel, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and you're standing on that campus and you look down and you see this walled ghetto. And these people are going through checkpoints every morning to take their children to school, to go to their jobs. They are receiving almost no uh, municipal services from the municipality of Jerusalem, even though they're paying taxes. And it's so bad that even the emergency services refuse to go in without an army uh, escort. And so um, I wanted to describe this insane reality that I live in and that it's really so very easy to ignore. You know, I live right next to it, but I... Uh, rarely, if ever, went into this enclave uh, prior to this accident. I didn't give it a moment's thought, even though I drove, you know, uh, feet away from this wall all the time. Mm-hmm. And after this tragedy happened, I really um, was uh, struck by the emotional power of the story that it was, it symbolized the terrible neglect. Mm-hmm. And it's a deliberate neglect. It's a policy of neglect right. uh, that's imposed on these people who live on the other side of this wall. And so through the accident, I saw that I could tell really the whole story of the settlements, the takeover of the land of this community, how they were encircled by a wall, how they live in a permit system, what the consequences of having these permits are on the worst day of a parent's life. And because, you know, there's so much information on Israel-Palestine, it is a flood of information. And if you're curious and you want to start learning, it's intimidating. You know, there's a hundred page report on the most narrow issue of land confiscation. There's another hundred page report on the permit system and another hundred page report on, you know, uh, the military court system. And I really wanted to present a book and a story to, uh, an ordinary person who has some curiosity about this place doesn't want to read 700-page NGO reports about the place and wants to know what does it really mean to live here, to be in the shoes of these people, both Jews and Palestinians, in this insane system of control. It's So what's really interesting to me, and, you know, your book came out on October 3rd, which was a coincidence that you could not have predicted, though I think maybe you could argue that something similar to what happened on October 7th was bound to happen at some point. You know, this conflict is ongoing. But as I was reading the book, because I finished it on October 6th. Oh, wow. And so I wake up on October 7th and I'm like, holy shit, like, What's going on? I was just reading about this, you know? Wow. But I want to know for you, because I know you don't just write a book and turn it in and it publishes a week later. How were you thinking that this book would be received? Who were you thinking would receive this book? And how has that changed since four days after your book came out? Yeah. Uh, My world was turned upside down uh, by the 
uh, events of October 7th and, and since then, obviously to a much lesser extent than so many other people who have died in the last uh, seven weeks. But, um, you know, I wrote the book thinking that um, there was a real appetite for a more honest conversation about Israel-Palestine in the U.S. and in Europe as well. And, you know, there had been a marked shift in uh, public opinion in the U.S., especially among young people, especially among progressive and uh, liberal Jews. And um, I was really hopeful that this book could be something that mm. all of those people could take and embrace and learn about the reality and, you know, start to see what every visitor to the West Bank actually sees with their own eyes when they go, which happens within minutes or an hour or two. Mm. You are just struck by, um, you know, what a moral catastrophe this place is. Right. And I thought that by telling the story, I could really convey that in a visceral way. Um, and, and after October 7th, and, and prior to October 7th, every, there was every indication that that was happening. You know, mm -hmm. I had events lined up with all kinds of synagogues and um, mm. I had events, you know, across the political spectrum from the kind sure. of far left to the center and not really right-wingers, but still, it was a broad <laughs> spectrum. And um, and then after October 7th, it was just a moment of extreme polarization. And mm -hmm. there were so many people who were embracing the book and uh, organizing events around it or doing study guides or all kinds of different things related to the book that just told me, you know, now is not the time. We mm -hmm. cannot have a nuanced conversation about occupation. We can't have a conversation about root causes. You know, right. people are too angry. They're they're uh, too deeply in grief. They're, it's mm -hmm. just not possible. And and you know, there were other people who organized events who went ahead with them, and they told me they were going ahead despite fearing. Yeah. Uh, the potential consequences. And, and those events went really well. And, and there hadn't been, you know, when we actually had the events, I had events canceled in five cities. You know, I had radio ads pulled for the book that had been running since October 3rd. And right. then after October 7th, they were uh, pulled from national radio in the U.S. due to listener complaints. Just everyone was scared to death of some kind of scandal or of, you know, upsetting anybody who said, you know, the word Palestinian is offensive to me, you know, right. please take down this ad. And and in normal circumstances, no one would listen to those listener complaints. Right. But after October 7th, they did. Um, but I have to say that when I did have these events and, and the title character, Abed Salama, was with me in the U.S. Oh. since the beginning of October. We were traveling together. We were doing events together. We went to the U.K. together. We came back to the U.S. together. And, you know, he would, in many of these events, he would tell the story of this day in his life in his own words. And there would be, you know, hardly a dry eye yeah. in the house. And people were deeply grateful, including when it was with, you know, a, a an audience that was... You know, for example, speaking to a, a, a Jewish group that was worried about 
how the audience would receive it. They were nothing but but grateful and and received it very well. So the gatekeepers have been scared, but most people who have engaged with the book, you know, did so yeah. really, really well. And I think like I think we should say this because part of your biography, I think that's really interesting. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you are Jewish. You're an American. You live in Jerusalem. You've written this book that I, I think, you know, depending on what kind of political leaning the speaker has, you could say is, you know, pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel. But, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I, I'll let people read it and decide what they think. Yep. Um, but also, you know, I'm also Jewish. And I, one of the things that's been really difficult for me, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious how this has been for you, is that I'm also a Black American, and a lot of the conversation around what's happened and a lot of the ways that I've been spoken to is like I've had friends reach out to me and say, like, you know, in, the, in that week, are you okay? And I've sort of been like, well... I'm upset, but I think I'm upset about something that you're not upset about. Like I'm, I'm actually really upset about what's happened in Palestine for, for years and years and years. And like any terrorist attack, I think we can all agree is, you know, pretty horrible. Yeah. But, but, and then I've been told that by supporting Palestine, that I am anti-Semitic and then I'm like, but wait, I'm Jewish. Like, and so I'm curious and I'm hoping you can get at the nuance in this because I've yet to hear someone talk about this. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the divisions within the Jewish community about what's going on? Because I remember in your book, you talk about the Mizrahim and like how certain groups are very in Israel are very pro-Palestine and very anti the Israeli government and they live side by side together. And then I hear people tell me, well, the Mizrahim are the ones who have the claim to the land and they, you know, and so I'm just really curious how this sort of breaks down if there is a breakdown among Jewish circles and obviously not asking you to speak for every Jewish person or every Israeli, but like, I think that nuance is missing because all the Jews of color that I know are extremely anti what Netanyahu is doing and what has been done in the name of Jews, the violence and all of that stuff. So I'm just really curious if you have kind of insight into that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, there are all these, uh, these jokes about the divisiveness of the uh, Jewish community, you know, that if for any, every, you know, two Jews, you have three synagogues. Um, (laughs) And so like the, the, you know, we could spend the whole time talking about all of the divisions among, uh, among Israeli Jews and also American Jews. Um, But um, you mentioned the Mizrahim, the Jews who come from, the East, who come from uh, North Africa and um, uh, countries in the Middle East, and and those Jews collectively are known as as Mizrahim, as Easterners in Israel, and those Jews, for the most part, are you know voting with the right in Israel, but they have a very complicated relationship with the state because the state was founded mostly by Jews from the former Russian Empire, Ashkenazi uh, Jews from different parts of Europe, but largely from the uh, former Russian Empire. In fact, in the first cabinet of Israel, the first government of Israel, 12 out of the 13 ministers were um, born either in North America or uh, the former Russian Empire. I think one of them was born in North America and the rest in the former uh, Russian Empire. Um, so this is a country of established by immigrants born in another place 
and they have a real sense of ownership over the state. Mm. And when the um, Jews, Mizrahi Jews, came largely during the 50s and the 60s, the largest group came from Morocco, they uh, were really poorly treated. Mm. Uh, and they, the Mizrahi Jews have a, a real resentment toward the Ashkenazi founders of the state and the way that they were treated you know, as essentially as Arab Jews mm -hmm. and um, treated as backwards and spoken of as though they were backwards. And there was even um, uh, the uh, orchestrated um, abduction of young uh, babies from Mizrahi families, new immigrants. And the state did not tell them that what they had done with their children, they told them their children had died and they gave them for adoption to Ashkenazi families. And in the last several years, some uh, records have come out from uh, state archives and from journalists who've investigated, who have shown the justifications that were given within the Ministry of Health and other parts of the, the government for this. And they were saying explicitly, these kids are going to have a better life uh, living with with Ashkenazi parents, it's in their own interest, and so one of the characters in the book is the founder of the settlement of Adam, which is just next to where the bus accident took place. And most of the West Bank settlements are founded and uh, populated by Ashkenazi Jews, um, and th the. Uh, Adam's settlement was unique because it was founded by a guy, uh, Beber Vanunu, who's a character in the book, who uh, was born in Morocco and experienced uh, this terrible discrimination against him and his family. And he wanted to create a better life for his people. And he sought out, he sought to emulate the Ashkenazi project of building these settlements mm -hmm. in the West Bank. And he created the settlement of Adam really to help his own people. And it's, it's, a, it's a unique uh, story. So anyway, that's one of the divisions. Another you know, division are the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews who are known in Israel as, as the Haredim. And the ultra-Orthodox Jews, it's another very complicated uh, story because on the one hand, when they're polled, they ex express very racist attitudes toward Palestinians, uh, toward Arabs in general. And, um, the, you know, the most racism of any uh, Jewish community. And at the same time, they are in large part either non-Zionist or anti-Zionist, meaning that they're opposed really to the existence of a Jewish state. They don't think mm -hmm. there should be a Jewish state they think it was a sacrilege to have created a Jewish state, which should only be done uh, by the will of God and not mm. by uh, the acts of man. And mm. so they have this uh, religious objection to the creation mm. of Israel and a very complicated uh, relationship with the state. And now today, a lot of the... Um, you know, prior to October 7th, there were these huge protests against uh, the government and they were against these judicial reforms that were being put through. And a big subtext of those protests was the feeling among kind of the secular middle and upper middle class in Israel that the country was going toward 
theocracy. The mm. uh, the Haredim, the Haredi population was growing. They were not serving in the army. The men for were working at very low rates in the workforce. The, the Haredi women were working. And the economy was going to implode if this continued um, because all the projections show that the Haredim would be a huge portion of the Israeli population in, in a couple uh, dozen years. So, um, so a big part of this protest uh, movement against the government and against the judicial reform was really a kind of anti-religious uh, protest, mm. which was also expressing a great deal of resentment toward the settlers. And the settlers are their own uh, <laughs> subgroup, and they're you know, the, the ideologues behind the settler movement, there are all kinds of settlers. There are middle class, you know, normal secular settlers who just want a cheaper house and are, um, you know, buying a bigger home, having a larger home than they could have uh, elsewhere because the government provides all these incentives for people to live in the settlements. And it's really seamless. It doesn't feel any different right. than living in a different suburb. Um, but the ideologues behind the movement, the, the so-called national religious, they're religious but hyper-nationalistic and, and very Zionist. And uh, a lot of the resentment in the judicial uh, reform protests, the anti-judicial reform protests, um, was against the, the national religious uh, as well as the Haredim. So those are the, the kind of... Um, those are several of this kind of major subgroups within Israel. And then the other are kind of the, the secular um, mainstream, which, um, you know, is mainly center right, center left in its orientation. And um, their bottom line is, you know, Israel was created to be a safe haven for Jews and uh, it needs to have a Jewish majority, no matter what. And so this whole settlement project and the occupation, um, you know, at some point it has to end or else we're going to lose the Jewish majority. The whole reason that we created mm -hmm. this place and the whole Zionist dream is going to crumble. And the thing is that when they've been in power, they haven't really done anything to advance toward that vision toward creating a Palestinian state. And in fact, the center left in Israel were the ones who created the settlements. They were the ones who um, uh, were at the head of the settlement project for the first 10 years after um, Israel conquered the West Bank and, and Gaza. So um, broadly speaking, those are kind of the main divisions uh, within, uh, within Israel. Okay. This is sort of a piggyback, maybe not. What do you make of the sort of strange bedfellows that this has made? Like, I think of like a lot of celebrities in America who have become like ideologically aligned with really right-wing conservative people in America or or that there are, you, you know, like I think maybe this happens a lot during conflict that different people end up, you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day or whatever, like that kind of thing. We're seeing this, I guess, I'm not sure the exact way to say it, but I guess seeing what's happening in Israel and Palestine, I've realized that people that I thought I agreed with on certain things are so far from me on, on this topic or vice versa. People that I never would have thought I agreed with. I'm like, oh, that is exactly what I said 
to my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering like what you what you make of that because I think it is sort of a challenge to American liberalism or or progressive is progressivism that that there's all of a sudden these maybe cracks in the foundation that we're seeing that have come up. Um I think like you know morally as you mentioned like what's happening in Israel is morally pretty awful. And a lot of people who I would say are generally like a moral compass for me are agreeing with what's happening. And so I'm just wondering like kind of what you make of that dissonance, maybe not necessarily in Israel, but in America um, and and what you're seeing and, and like the media portrayal and all, and all of that. That's a big question. I should have taken a break before. We'll take a break after. <laughs> okay. So, if, you know, if I could, I just want to back up to yes. the end of my last one, because I said, yes. those are the divisions within Israel, broadly yeah. speaking, but I should have said, those are the divisions among Israeli Jews, yes. broadly speaking. And in addition, you have Palestinians, of course. Right. And okay. Palestinians, you know, under Israeli rule, you have 7 million Jews uh, who are Israeli citizens. You have 7 million uh, Palestinians. And the vast majority of those Palestinians don't have basic civil rights. Those are the Palestinians living in the West Bank and right. Gaza. Uh, and in addition, you have these other categories as well, which are Palestinian citizens of Israel, who are over 20% of the population of Israel, and they are totally uh, alienated from this whole intra-Zionist debate about how do we preserve a Jewish majority, how do we fight the quote-unquote demographic threat of uh, uh, Arab population growth, and... um, And they really are struggling, the Palestinian citizens of Israel are struggling to just put on the agenda the notion of equality, full equality and individual and collective rights. Um, So just to to give the the full picture there. (laughs) Um, Now... um, So help me understand a little bit better your question about um, about the the U.S. So what you're seeing on one hand is you're seeing people who are, I mean, this is one of the few things where we have an actual acronym in the U.S. for many years is PEP, right? Progressive Accept Palestine. It's its own category. It's all of these people who are self-identified liberals, but when it comes to Palestine, when it comes to Israel, then suddenly they are towing an ideological line that doesn't sound very progressive because it is saying, well, of course, we need to have an ethno-national state with a Jewish majority and special privileges for Jews, and that's justified in this way and that way. Yes. Yes. So, so that's a that's an old phenomenon, and what it what really it's October since October seventh, it's it's uh, highlighted, yeah. um, you know how great that contradiction is on one hand, and also how big that group is because you know yes. uh, that's bef- the part before October seventh, those people would kind of be either silent or they would say, you know, yes, it's terrible. And I, you know, I, I don't really have that much to say on Israel, Palestine anymore. Anyway, Israel's drifted so far to the right, I can't justify it. Um, But really, when it comes down to it, they are going to uh, justify it when uh, they're forced to. And and that's what October 7th has done. It's shown that um, the 
center left of the American Jewish community is um, not really willing to question some very fundamental tenets of their belief system. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, again, I think that a lot of this has to do with miseducation. I think mm. that so many of, of these people, and in Israel as well, don't know their basic history. And so there are all kinds of just basic facts that people are shocked by when they learn. So for example, one of the central talking points of the kind of progressive accept Palestine, the PEP crowd in the U.S. is Israel has made nothing but generous offers to the Palestinians. They've rejected every one. And in 1948, Israel declared independence and established a, a Jewish state. And the Arab states came in and attacked, and there was this giant refugee problem that was created through that war. But it's really the fault of the Arabs because, uh, you know, depending on how progressive right. the vision is, either they're such anti-Semites they couldn't stand there being a Jewish state, or they'll say, you know, that it's the the Arabs' fault for you know initiating this war. And if you tell them that actually. Prior to Israel's declaration of independence in May 1948, there was already a civil war raging between Jews and and, uh, Palestinians in historic Palestine. And prior to the declaration of independence, already some 250,000 or more refugees had been, Palestinians had been displaced expelled or forced to flee from their homes. At least a third of all of those who were forcibly displaced in the 1948 war, you know, it wasn't the case that they were all displaced and expelled after the the Arab states invaded. That's just a a kind of a basic historical fact that every historian knows. Mm -hmm. And many Israelis do not know. Many American Jews do not know. Um, Similarly, you know, their American Jews and and Israelis are told a kind of very cursory history of Israel between the end of the Second Temple and the establishment of the state of Israel. And you sweep over all of that and you just say, there's been a continuous Jewish presence in, in, uh, you know, the land of Israel since, since the Second Temple. Um, but what was the size of that right. Jewish presence? And how many Jews were there at the start of this conflict, which began with a political idea called Zionism? When the first Zionist uh, settlers arrived in Palestine in 1882, the Jewish population was less than 5%. Again, that is just the most basic fact, you know, the more than 90% of the population is opposed, of course, to the idea of immigrants from the Russian Empire coming and establishing a state for Jews with special privileges for Jews, not coming as immigrants to live in equality and a state for all its citizens, but coming to create their own state for themselves against the will of more than 90% of the population. That casts a, a totally different light on this entire uh, conflict. And so, again, I, I just really feel like so much of this boils down to uh, miseducation. 
Okay, we are going to take our break now. I have many more questions. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back. Um, I want to ask you, so as I mentioned, I'm a Black American. I'm also Jewish. And something that has felt sort of mm, deja vu-y is that I remember summer 2020 when a lot of white Americans and white people around the world discovered racism. And they also discovered my podcast at that same time. And they decided they were going to listen to Black women. And it was this whole thing. And when People would ask, you know, why now? Because America has had racism for centuries. People would say, well, you know, COVID, we had to pay attention to this George Floyd video. We had to sit and watch this nine plus minute video of this man being killed for us to really see it. And because we're all at home, we can really think about what white people have done. And it's been horrible. Flash forward to 2023. Just it's not it's not the same. We don't seem to still remember that we're supposed to be listening to black people. We don't seem to remember that all this is going on. You know, the numbers in the DEI offices, they're not great. Um, And 
I have had a bit of a deja vu around this because I feel that what I've seen in America is all of a sudden everybody cares about Israel and Palestine, whether you want a free Palestine or you believe that, you know, the Israelis are being persecuted and there's all this anti-Semitism and and either side or, or both sides or however you want to look at it, there is this really enthusiastic concern about what's going on. And I'm just curious to you, or I'm curious to ask you, do you feel like what we're seeing is a genuine, long-lasting change in what's been going on in Israel? Or do we think that there's some there's a reason why this particular these particular events in this year are the ones that people care about? Just like racism in America, you could have cared five years ago, but now this this is this moment. So I'm just wondering what you think of October 7th being this moment. And if you think this will last, if, if in a year we'll still be talking about this, if this will have made a major shift in this relationship between Israel and Palestine and, and its impact on the world, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I would say a, a, a few things. One is there is no doubt that October 7th and the war in Gaza are a major, major historic event in okay. the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict. And um, it will have uh, decades-long repercussions and probably will have major repercussions also in the U.S. and in terms of U.S. Uh, public opinion. However, it is definitely the case that everything that there is to be upset about in Israel-Palestine existed prior to October 7th. And uh, just as you, as you point out with uh, George Floyd, I mean, we have had uh, decades of ethnic domination by Jews over Palestinians. And uh, many of the people who are now awakening to that reality, um, they could have been uh, focused on it prior to, to October 7th. And for me, you know, thinking about the U.S. and what the effects of this war are going to be, it's a really confusing picture. I really don't know what we're seeing, what's temporary, what's permanent. Um, because on the one hand, you know, my own personal experience has been seeing, you know, radio ads pulled just because it's a you know the most basic radio ad that has the word palestinian in it and uh having events canceled and this is not you know a, a polemical book this is a work of narrative nonfiction. it's showing right. the lives of jews and palestinians and people are afraid to have that event um so my personal experience has been seeing the elite and the gatekeepers really fearful on the other hand, when I go to uh, universities and I talk to younger people, they all tell me they've never felt that there has been a stronger support for Palestinian rights. And I think that there is just an enormous uh, generational gap. Yeah. And, um, and how that's going to play out, I don't know. But it really does seem that a lot of people are being educated now about mm -hmm. Israel-Palestine, are learning about Israel-Palestine. They're learning about how important it is for them to know about it as Americans because American, America's been funding it. Right. And, um, and so 
I think it will be really important um, if this generational shift lasts. One of the issues is that there's a huge discrepancy in who cares, how much people care about mm -hmm. a given issue. So mm -hmm. now there's a war in Gaza and you have lots of different coalitions forming, uh, calling for a ceasefire opposed to Israeli uh, policy and that's significant. But if you're thinking about really a big change in US policy toward Israel-Palestine, something like conditioning aid to Israel or you know forcing Israel to choose, either you mm -hmm. give equal rights or you end the occupation, one or the other, we're not gonna keep supporting you uh, for decades as you uh, gobble up the land and, and don't give uh, equal rights and continue to have an occupation. So um, whether that kind of shift can happen really depends on how much these people who are engaged now can be relied upon to engage when there's not a war in Gaza. Because right. the, the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, it really only takes a very committed group who really disproportionately cares about an issue to have a huge influence. And if we're in some future a year from now where Israel-Palestine is very far from the front page of the news, um, it's going to come back to basically, you know, the Jewish American community in the United States having a really disproportionate voice on this issue, mm. as well as to some degree the Palestinian and Arab community, but a much smaller, much less influential voice. Mm -hmm. And everybody else, you know, you could point to where they stood now in October and November 2023. But it doesn't really amount to much because they're not going to vote on it. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to, you know, vote out this congressional primary candidate because of the awful stance they took right. on Palestine. Although it's such a big issue today, it's possible to imagine that that could happen. And we see all of these uh, Arab Americans who are saying, I cannot vote for Biden. I right. cannot vote for Biden after how he is giving a green light to right stopping fuel, electricity, water to two plus million innocent people. And they're saying, I'm a Democrat, I loathe Trump, and I don't care. I cannot, this man is giving a green light to the worst atrocities against right. my people. Right. Okay, let me ask you this. Yep. How is this event how is October 7th and the fallout that we've seen and the war in Gaza and, and America's relationship to it different if Trump is president? Is it how, different? How would it how would these events now play out yes, if like Trump had been president? If Trump had been the president in October on October 7th, 2023, what do you see? Do you see a difference? If so, what? Um <laughs> It's he's so unpredictable. Yes. Uh, it's it's very really hard. hard to say because, you know, I, I remember that when he was first running for president, there were a lot of people pro-Palestinian folks in the U.S. who were shocked at the things that he was saying in the primary debates, which you could not say in American politics. Right. And he was essentially saying, you know, the U.S. needs to come in and impose a, a solution and. Um, that's something that, you know, American politicians don't say. So 
I just want to caveat caveat whatever I say about Trump right. with you know the fact that he's really wildly unpredictable. But you know, the, the based on his behavior during his first term, it would probably be very similar to what mm-hmm. Biden uh, is doing now. You could imagine he might be even more yeah. you know gung ho in his support of Israel, but practically. I think it would be very, uh, very similar. Okay. I have to ask you this question and I'm curious, I'm curious to hear what you say. Who are you, Nathan Thrall, to tell this story? Do you worry that because you're American, because you're Jewish, that this isn't your story to tell or that there's like some sort of white savior thing? Like how does all of that resonate with you? Because before I'll, I'll just be frank. Before yeah, yeah. I read the book, I was like, who's this guy? I'm like, <laughs> Nathan Thrall doesn't sound like a Palestinian. And then, you know, I was like, he's definitely not. And I didn't know you were Jewish at the time. I didn't do any research because I didn't think I was going to have you on the show, to be honest. So I was like, well, I'm just going to read the book and see how I like it. Yeah. And then since reading the book and then the events of October 7th and knowing so many Palestinian journalists have been killed, members of the press, like... I just I I don't think I can have you on and not ask you about that part of this story. So I'm really curious what you think. Yeah, that's a totally legitimate question. Um, so, you know, m- my uh, basic feeling is that, you know, this particular story, this accident occurred in 2012. It wasn't going to get told by mm. somebody else. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I was uh, elbowing anybody else aside preventing someone else from telling this um, story. You know, in my own personal life, I have many friends who are Palestinian writers and journalists, and um, and I know how much they struggle to have a voice and how much they struggle to be treated equally when they want to appear on a TV news program and how when they appear, they're asked, do you condemn X as the first question? And whenever an Israeli goes on, they're not asked that same question. Um, And and so, you know, all I can say is is that, you know, I was uh, uh, trying to do the best that I could as a journalist uh, to tell this story in in the most uh, the most honest and and real way that I that I possibly could, I felt that the characters that the the subjects of the book uh, really trusted me, and I ha- felt an obligation to do justice to their story um, and to that trust. And the other thing is like. This book is not about me. The book is, there's no memoir. There's no I in the book. Uh, There is no, even like my own analysis or, you know, historical viewpoint, it's all told through the eyes of the characters. That's the big constraint that I put on myself was that really this was supposed to be immersive and really put you closely inside the thoughts and feelings of these people. And, and so um, I'm not coming at it trying to, you know, it's not, I'm not making it about myself. And in fact, I really have an aversion. Um, there's a whole genre of writing, uh, in the U S among American Jews, which is this, this kind what I call the, you lied to be at Camp Ramah. 
there's like a, a whole, you know, dozens of articles that can fit under this heading. And what it is, is it's uh, young American Jews who are slowly learning the facts about mm-hmm. Israel-Palestine and expressing uh, justified anger toward their leaders, toward their camp counselors, toward the leaders of the Jewish community who sold them a bill of goods about Israel-Palestine and all of these talking points that turned out to be uh, pretty false. And the thing that I hate about that genre is that it's, again, it's it's not wrong to have that feeling and it's not wrong to say it, but it's almost as though there's more anger expressed toward uh, the people who miseducated them than toward the actual system right. that they, that was hidden from them that they should be outraged about. Sure, sure. And, and so I, I'm totally sensitive to the um, uh, concern that, you know, an American Jewish uh, author could be, you know, the wrong person to tell a, a, a given story. And, and I just hope that my own, you know, writing speaks for itself and shows that I'm not I'm not coming at it uh, in that way. Okay, this is a hard shift. Everyone gets mm. these questions from me. It's a really hard shift. Mm. Uh, how do you write? Where are you? How often um, are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals? Set the scene. Yeah. So um, I am quite rigid and ritualistic about okay. the writing. Um, for me, Research and writing are two totally distinct phases. Okay. And there's research where I'm just meeting, interviewing, vacuuming up information, um, uh, collecting court reports, etc. And then there is a long period that my wife teases me about <laughs> as essentially uh, glorified procrastination. Okay. But that's, I love it there. <laughs> that's the period when I'm really just like sitting by myself okay. and thinking about structure. I'm okay. thinking about what's going in, what's going out, what order, how do I solve structural problems? Because mm. this book was the largest structural challenge I've ever faced. I mean, it was extremely difficult because the whole concept is a narrative, a chronological narrative of a single, you know, basically day-long event, this tragic bus crash. And each, at the same time, you can't have, uh, people just cannot, readers cannot keep too many characters in their head at one time. So you can't have somebody dart in at, you know, 9 a.m. or, you know, chapter one, and then the same person darts in, you know, at 11 a.m. several chapters later, you've forgotten who they are, you have to reintroduce them, it's it's too complicated. So you had to choose what is the most relevant point at which Mm. a person enters the story, and you basically deal with that person wholly in that moment, and you exclude their other interactions with the accident. And at the same time, so that's one layer of complication. (laughs) And then beyond that is that each of these people have a deep history. They have a history of expulsion in 1948 and the story of Palestinian exile or the story of, you know, the Mizrahi Jews who came uh, and the founding of the settlement. And that also, you know, you need 
to think about what makes sense to tell which story in what order. And sometimes it's actually their backstory is the more important aspect of a given right. character. So those were the two kind of timelines that I was trying to juggle and, and balance. And that was this very long period of procrastination before saying, okay, I'm close enough to having a structure that I can start writing. And then the writing itself, I have to write first thing in the morning. Okay. And I'm a total uh, prima donna about it. Like if okay. if something happens where my you know schedule gets screwed up and I have to do other things in the morning and I've like now it's been, you know, four out waking hours, even okay. if I woke up at six and it's 10 right. a.m., I'm like, my day is shot. It's, it's ruined. ruined. I cannot <laughs> sit and write now. I need a clear head. I'm thinking about all the bullshit that I had to I deal with it. and my day is shot. So... um this is my excuse for being a total prima donna about getting out of bed. And so during writing time, I actually will set an alarm. I'll go to bed earlier and earlier every night and I'll set alarms for, uh, you know, when it's still dark out, you know, sometimes four something, sometimes five something in the morning. Ugh, and, uh, but I'll, I'll get, I, I do sleep well. I, I okay. do get a okay. full eight hours of sleep. So I'll just go to bed early and, um, and then I will go, I have neighbors who live very close to me who are gone half the year. And I've written both of my books basically in their empty apartment. And so I'll go in the dark, walk a block away, enter their place and do my very best not to check my email or look at Twitter or mm -hmm. anything else and really just open up the material and start writing. And then I, once I start to get into a rhythm then I can actually like start to plot out like, okay, I'm doing basically a thousand words a day. I'm going to be done with a draft at point X. And then it, it becomes really, um, I don't know, like very mechanical almost mm -hmm. in, in terms of having a, a regimen. And, and then I, I don't even take days off. I just like, I'm determined to finish the project at a given time and at least have a first draft. And then editing is much looser. It's that that can happen. Doesn't have to happen first thing right. in the morning. Um, but, um, but yeah, that, that was the process. So the actual writing I did in a very short and intensive time. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm assuming you don't have any food or beverages while you're doing this intense writing. Oh, no, I definitely have uh, coffee. I'm okay. I, I am a very I am dependent on caffeine. Okay. And okay. so I will have. Um, yeah, usually I will have like a, a quick breakfast. Uh, often I'll start the writing and then I'll have a breakfast okay. like in the middle of it. Um, and the coffee happens right away as soon as I wake up you know, two shots Got of it. espresso and I'm out okay. the door. Yeah. Okay. You can stay on the show. I was getting really nervous. I was like, <laughs> we're gonna have to kick him off. Um, what about any words you can't spell on the first try? Hmm. Or are um, you a good speller? I think I'm a good speller, but um, Ugh, there are, there Killing are some me. words, there are some words that I often, what is it that I often misspell? Um, I can't remember. But but okay. uh, but there are a couple of words that I that I always have to like triple check because there are two different spellings of them and I'm I'm I mix them up. Okay, that's sort of acceptable. We really like terrible spellers around here. Like, if you really want my listeners to like you and read your I book, see. you got to tell them that you can't spell like walk or something crazy. I see. I'll, uh, I'll tell you what I do have issues with is okay. uh, is 
uh, commas. I am oh, sure. I'm, oh my gosh! I, I can really, I can really f- have a lot of vacillation about whether a comma is necessary. And in this book in particular, I really tried to tell myself, like, forget about grammar. Just mm-hmm. if the comma isn't needed to read the sentence well, don't use it. I really wanted to have many fewer commas than, yeah. than grammar might call for. I personally believe that grammar is a suggestion. <laughs> and if you want a comma, you get a comma. Sometimes yeah. I just put in a colon. I don't even know what a colon <laughs> does, but sometimes I'll just use one. Like, it's crazy. So I know we talked about at the very, very beginning, you were saying that part of the reason you wanted to write this book in this way is because there's so much information and there's you could read 100 pages on one tiny little what you know rule or law, or you could read these histories that are 700 pages or whatever. I'm going to ask you to recommend to people some other books or shows or podcasts or whatever uh, that are in conversation with what you've done here. Um, And normally I would let people like recommend anything, but I'm going to put a small constraint on you and ask you to recommend things specifically about Israel-Palestine. Okay. So one thing that I would recommend is a documentary film called The Law in These Parts. And um, this is a movie about the occupation, and it's done in the most basic way with, um, it has a bunch of archival footage, but what it really features is it features uh, the judges of the military court system, of the Israeli military court system, who are explaining basically the whole system and the policies that they put in place, and they are grappling in this movie live on screen with their own guilt, complicity, Mm. lack of guilt in clearly a system that is so unjust. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of them are rationalizing it and justifying it in the film. And I think it is the best documentary ever done on the occupation. It's uh, superb. The law in these parts an overall uh, uh, diplomatic history of Israel-Palestine that is uh, superb is by uh, Avi Schleim, and uh, it's called The Iron Wall. And if you want to read one book that kind of tells you the whole history of Israel-Palestine, it's a a superb book by uh, a historian at Oxford. Another uh, book that is like the kind of definitive Palestinian overall history uh, is is by uh, Rashid Khalidi, and it's called The Hundred, Hundred Years' War on uh, Palestine. And another book that I would recommend or set of books that I would recommend are by uh, Raja Shahada, who uh, has just written a number of really beautiful, intimate, um, often memoiry uh, books about life uh, in Ramallah and the story of his family came from Jaffa. Um, and those are, are very good. The um, short stories of Hassan Khanafani, who was a uh, leading Palestinian writer, novelist, um, and, and also critic, and was a spokesperson at one point for the uh, PFLP. Um, he was assassinated by Israel and is a marvelous uh, writer. And I highly, highly recommend um, the um, the works of uh, Hassan Khanafani. 
Amazing. Um, I actually read uh, We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I, the yeah. same week that I read your book. Again, oh, wow. coincidentally, right before October 7th. Yeah. Um, but that was my first, that was my first of his work. And I know he's written a lot of other stuff, but anyways. Um, okay. Two questions. One is what do you hope people will keep in mind as they read your book? I mean, the real thing that I want them to understand is that this world that it describes is here today and that we are paying for it. We as Americans are paying for it. And I don't think anybody who reads this book wants to have any part of this system. And 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 we are fully, fully responsible, uh, not as responsible as the state of Israel, but we are very complicit in this system. We are funding this system. We are backing the system up. We're issuing vetoes at the UN Security Council to keep this system propped up. And I want people to think about the fact that this is a story not just about a faraway place, but it's a story that is part of us. It is an American story also because of our own role in uh, creating the system. What are we supposed to do? Not pay taxes? Like, just call our representatives. It feels very frustrating because I, of course, don't want anything to do with this, but I'm also like, I'm not at the UN. Nobody asked me to vote. Like, what am I supposed to do, Nathan? Yeah. I mean, one thing is we you, we really need to make our voices heard to our elected representatives because they do not hear from people who are the all those people who are now calling for a ceasefire they don't hear from them. They hear from one side. All of the organizing happens on one side. And there is such a disproportionate uh, you know, level of power for the pro-Israel side in, in the U.S. versus the other side. And it's not just with, with who the congressperson hears from, how many complaints the office gets, uh, how much lobbying they receive. It's in all kinds of other domains. You know, when I've written op-eds for the New York Times on Israel-Palestine, those editors have told me, you know, this is going to be a giant headache because mm. anytime we publish on Israel-Palestine from someone like you, we are going to get inundated with fake complaints that are demanding co corrections. They're really just trying to give us a headache. And right. so they're framing their ideological objection as a factual one because they know that's the game they have to play to get a mm. correction. Mm -hmm. Every time they've failed, they haven't gotten a correction but out, out of me. But still, they um, uh, flood these editors with these demands. And the editors then spend two weeks addressing all of this historical right. minutia that they don't know about. And then they're emailing me to ask me, how do you respond <laughs> to this and whatever? Right, right, and they're like, I'd just rather not publish not on it. this issue. Yeah. But if they publish the pro-Israel op-ed, there's no parallel thing. So it's mm. a, it's, there's a, a deterrence that, that takes place. There's a big cost to you in publishing views like mine, and there's no cost in publishing or little cost comparatively in publishing a pro-Israel view. And so mm. that exists across the kind of cultural space. And I, I, my hope is that what we're seeing today with all of these young people 
who are saying things you never heard Americans say about Israel-Palestine before is going to change that. And so I think that whatever domain you're in, if you're in academia, if you're in the media, if you're, you know, in politics, even in your own workplace, you know, all of those places, I, I feel like are places where it needs to be said and said loudly and for it to be normal to express support for the freedom of the Palestinian people and the opposition to the U.S. role in keeping them oppressed. Mm. Okay, last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, who would you want it to be? Hmm. Um, the first person that comes to mind uh, is um, Barack Obama, actually, because um, I know that he's filled with regret about um, about what he could have done differently. I think he said that quite recently. Um, and uh, and I'd like I, I feel like this is the kind of book that would really um, speak to him. Well, he has not released his end of year list at this time of recording, so maybe he's read it. Fingers crossed. We'll find out. Fingers crossed. Um, Nathan, this was just such a good conversation. Thank you so much for your generosity with your time and also just answering all of my questions because normally I really stick to the book, but I was like, we got an expert. It's very newsy. We'll do it. Um, People, you can get the book now wherever you get your books. It is, I think it's on my gift guide. I think it's a great gift for that uncle or aunt or maybe your cousin that you're like, I'm tired of seeing their weird Instagram posts or like they've been on Facebook saying stuff. I don't agree. Wrap this up for the holidays. Slide it under the menorah. Slide it under the tree. Give it on Kwanzaa. I don't know. Happy New Year, Uncle John. Read this book. Nathan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Nathan Thrall for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Emily Lavelle for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for December is Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, which we will discuss on December 27th with Farah Kareem Cooper. If you love the Stacks and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of the Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.